think if people do get in the wine industry to make the best possible wine, then you benchmark yourself against those that you think are at the top. More than often, um, those at the top are practicing uh, organics and biodynamics. And also for me, uh, an organic vineyard is more resistant and resilient. And in our, in our 15 years of organic farming, we, we're seeing that with the long-term blocks. Morena, and welcome to the Wine Marlborough podcast. Whether you're curious about what makes a great wine or what's going on in the soil beneath the vines, come and explore the fascinating world of grape growing and winemaking in New Zealand's biggest wine growing region. This podcast is made possible thanks to the support of River Sun Nursery. I'm your host, Sophie, editor of Wine Press magazine. Now, Wine Press and this podcast are produced by Wine Marlborough, an industry association working to grow, educate, protect, and celebrate the region's wine growers. And I'm joined by Wine Marlborough General Manager Marcus Pickens here today. So, Marcus, I saw you earlier this week at the Winter Field Day that Wine Marlborough organises in the lead up to what's a really busy pruning season. Yes, it was um, great to do that for our members and uh, gather people in a vineyard where they're, it's their sort of um, schoolroom, I suppose, and get some industry experts to keep everyone up to date on on the you know what's happening in the in the field, um, what tips and tricks they can learn and observe. So yeah, it went really well, and it's a big task ahead of us with uh, winter winter work. It it uh, you know at least takes more than three months, but we're embarking on that now. Yeah. I understand that Marlborough's coming up to nearly 30,000 hectares of vines now, which apparently equates to around 66 million vines to prune. It, it does put it into perspective, that, that task, you know, all those um, great vines supplied by River Sun mm. and other companies, you know, just um, have such a high touch point for our workforce. Uh, there is automation coming, but, uh, you know, that, that um, visual the human eye selecting which canes to um, retain and which to cut out for the for the season that have done their job. You know, it's huge. But, mm. you know, 66 million times? I mean, goodness me. <laughs> yeah, it was great to hear from um, Tanya Pufri from the uh, New Zealand Ethical Employers talking about the seasonal workers that come in to help with that. Oh, yes. Is I mean, key, they're I so important. I mean, 3,000 3, at least come to Marlborough for our winter period and um, without them, you know, our fortunes would be you know, dramatically different. So it's great to see more awareness and more care and more um, just protection of their interests coming through with, yeah, all, all the work we're all doing collectively. Mm, brilliant. Talking of collective work and well-being, uh, Wine Marlborough's just had its first Marlborough Wine Industry Wellness Week. Yes. phrase? Yes. That's, yeah, great. And uh, two big winners – yeah, it was brilliant. There was only intended to be one ultimate winner, but uh, when you can't separate, I wasn't involved in the decision making, but the panel just couldn't separate um, or couldn't clearly say one's better than the other. So they, they awarded two prizes, uh, one probably the slightly higher recognition went to Spy Valley this year for um, a concept they did uh, called Taco Tuesday, bringing everyone together and um, you know really involving the whole organisation in their wellbeing initiative which um, the judging panel thought was really deserved um, special mention. And then Yeelands did an amazing um, activity as well. And um, I think we're learning from each other, and that's probably the beauty of doing this. Everyone mm. can share information that others can pick up and adopt, and uh, we want to see that continue. Yeah, what I really enjoyed talking to both those companies was that um, this isn't just a one-off initiative that's out there to share and show that they're doing so well. I mean, they've got so many things going on, you know, a couple of weeks later, Spy Valley had a big 
cricket match with all of their vineyard and their winery and their office teams. And they've had hula hoop competitions. And I know out of Yearlands, uh, Brody, who looks after it out there, is he's pretty passionate about everyone doing better and being better in the workplace. No, oh, it's so important. I think we need to spread that a bit deeper into our, our grower workforce as well and um, partnering with people like FarmStrong. Gosh, their resources are amazing. I'd just implore everyone to have a look at their website. This And he's, they've got a great inspirational um, leader in um, Sam Whitelock, but, uh, which sort of makes it a bit more accessible, I suppose, that person you know. Mm. Um, and, yeah, the resources are amazing and they've been so supportive of our activities, which gives us an extra... Um, boost, you know, that we're we're doing something meaningful. Mm, that's fantastic. So uh, today's interview on the podcast is in the lead up to the Organic and Biodynamic Wine Growing Conference, which is on June 20 to 22 here in Marlborough. Um, I think their first conference in, was in 2015 and it was amazing. It was packed not just with organic uh, growers, but people in conversion and people, conventional growers and regenerative um, viticulturists. Everyone pretty excited about ways of uh, working in with the land and improving their soil and vines and wines as a result. You've been to a few of them, eh? I have, and they, they are such a good um, such a good opportunity to listen and learn. And um, and I think there's been so much adoption in some of those um, some of those techniques that people are using. Yeah, brilliant. So I have a chat to um, Bart Ernst and Erica Crawford. So uh, Bart, firstly, he's one of he's probably the stalwart of organics in. Um, Marlborough. He started out in the mid-90s when not many people were talking about it and has been pretty passionate about it ever since. Uh, he is a co-founder of Organic Wine Growers New Zealand, co-founder of uh, Organic Wine Label The Darling and co-chair of the conference. So he's got a lot of insights into organics. Uh, I guess he's been a bit of an, a huge influence really on the progress of cover crops and crimpings and compost and microbial counts in New Zealand viticulture as a whole. And the other speaker is um, Erica Crawford, who founded a massive wine label, oh, didn't she? Amazing. I've followed her journey for such a long time. And um, yeah, it's been been amazing to see how they've sort of changed their their direction. Um, Erica, I know her pretty well. She's now the founder of Love Block Wines, and they're based in the Arbitrary Valley. And um I love that. I didn't know this, but um, she's a recipient of the Business Hall of Fame for Women Entrepreneurs. And also, I knew she was a mentor in the NZ Wine uh, Mentorship Program, and she'd be wonderful to be mentored by. Um, and yeah, really into the organic wine growing um, thing. She's on the board of Organic Wine Growers New Zealand. And like um, Sophie said, yeah, they founded this really giant wine label, probably not giant at the beginning, but became giant, Kim Crawford Wines. And um yeah, I love the, the, that you can pivot and change and there's a place for everyone in the wine industry. So they've demonstrated that just so well. Mm. So, yeah, I'm really listening. I always listen to what she says. Erica, she's a great thinker. Yeah, lots of insights into the market, but also what's happening on the land. Yes. Yeah, one interesting thing I think um, in the interview we're about to run is the um, their impressions of how You've got the organic growers, um, but then that influence beyond that, a bit of a halo effect and, a, you know, a softening um, across the board uh, in viticulture with people using using less inputs and really working in to improve their soil. So pretty exciting journey, I reckon. It's good to learn, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Brilliant. Well, um, enjoy. Morena Ba, Morena Erika, thank you very much for coming in today to talk to us. 
as you know, we like to begin with a 15-word description of a great day in your job. So, Erica, do you want to start? I'm an early riser. I make get up, make a cup of coffee, and then catch up on what's happened during the night. Oh, um, 15 words. Uh, observing something new in the vineyard that I might be able to implement further down the track and getting less than 40 phone calls a day. <laughs> Sorry for being some of those phone calls, but what kind of thing would you want to, would that be? Like, what kind of thing would you see in the vineyard that you could implement? Well, you know, pruning at the moment, doing some heavy cuts, looking at um, options for the growing season. Why is that vine done better than the next one? Digging some holes, checking the root systems, mm-hmm. just trying to build up knowledge on the individual blocks as we go along. They're all different. Yeah. Great. So um, just to begin with, it's probably very simple to the two of you, but can you describe a great organic vineyard? What do you want to see out there? And I suppose it's you know beneath the soil as well. Well, I think a great organic vineyard will give you great organic fruit, which will make great organic wine. And um, being that all and vineyards are individuals, so I don't know if you can sort of pinpoint, well, that's a... You know, it, it would be a fantastic represent, representation of a vineyard in that particular area, as opposed to, you know, broad across, across the country, across the world. Um, you know, it's balanced. It's looks vibrant. I know that it feels vibrant. You can. Um, it sounds a bit weird, but you can walk into a vineyard that's got things happening that are maybe a little unseen, but mm. you get a vibe. Yeah, you get a vibe. And I suppose it's a little bit maybe messier than the vineyards that we might have seen here in the past? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, but it's not a bad thing. I think now we're starting to see, you know, a lot more people embracing Regen Ag, which organic farmers have been doing that for a long, long, long time. And also for me, an organic vineyard is more resistant and resilient and in our in our fifteen years of organic farming, we we're seeing that with the long term blocks. Yeah. Mm. In what ways would you see it, Erica? Disease pressure is definitely um, it, it, it withstands disease a lot better in infections such as powdery mm. So a good organic vineyard makes good organic grapes, makes good organic wine. You say Bart, and um, I want to go back to that. So Nigel Soman from Dog Point Vineyards was in our April podcast and in that interview he said that every grapevine in the world is 96% exactly the same and there's 4% that gives you the difference and that comes from the soil. Is that what is that what makes the grape wine? I think so. I think that the soil biome is we know increasingly that it has more and more of an influence on on the flavour profile of wine as well. So and of course, it differs in the vineyard, and 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 so we also put it into the bigger thing of soil. But we can now say the biome does this, and and the structure is responsible for this. So I think it's a little bit like your gut biome. Some people with a particular gut profile is predisposed to say depression or whatever, and I think it's I think it may be the same with with the soil. And Johan Reinecke, who's coming to the organic conference, speaks about that quite a lot. Mm. Fantastic. Everybody talks these days, and I know at the conference you've got sessions on it on mycorrhizae and all these exciting things happening under the soil. Um, It it must have been a long time, Bart, for you trying to convince people of looking 
below the vein, the soil, and seeing what could be done. Oh, uh, I guess it's a yes and no answer. I think we'll always have um, people in our industry that are, um, are, are factory farming and um, make their life as easy as possible and their aim is to make as much money as they can in a short space of time. Um, that's just the fact, right? We, being a younger industry, um, haven't got that succession that happens in Europe. So if we're standing on a vineyard today, I could well be standing on that vineyard that um, has been three, four, five generations or whatever. Mm. Um, we haven't reached that level of maturity, I don't mm. think, and a lot of people are treating um, the vineyard as a bit of a cash care and then when they're sick of it or... The, you know, it gets passed on to the next person that, that then has to sort of deal with what's been happening and then, you know, so on and so forth. If if you certainly work, walk into a vineyard that's had, um, be it organic or not, that's had, um, you know, some respect paid to the soil, I think the, the vineyard is um, most likely to have better longevity and um, if, if they do choose to convert to organics, then the process is a lot simpler. Mm. I, I think that um, we can't keep milking the soil, and there's a strong realization of that in, in New Zealand and elsewhere. And that's not, it's particularly, I think, the wine industry is quite good in that. But we, of course, need other industries, such particularly dairy, to follow along with that as well. Mm. We can't keep milking the soil like we have. New Zealand's an agrarian economy. We haven't got much else, so mm. it's it's absolutely imperative that we we take care of that. I think. So going back to where you both got into organics, um, but as you say, the industry here is young. The Marlborough's wine industry is turning 50 this year. You've been in it for how long? 30-something. 30-something years. And when did you start thinking um, that you weren't quite sure about conventional viticulture? Mid-90s, yeah, pretty much. Um, I had... um, you know, staff working for a larger company and just started to get a bit concerned about, you know, if you spray this product, you can't go into that area for X amount of time. You need to put this on when you're doing it. Um, and um, I was just like, well, it's got to be a different way, you know. Mm-hmm. And and there was. And, you know, I mean, internet really wasn't something I was that savvy with then if it even existed. So there was a lot of reading old old journals and and not just focusing on viticulture and um you know you know grow your own organic vegetables and what have you and built up a bit of a picture then um had a go at changing a few things and fortunately um my employers at the time said well just play down at that back end of the vineyard and (laughs) (laughs) we'll visit it occasionally and uh you know we started to see some things that were working really quickly and um, surprisingly quickly, really, when we change systems. So what would they be? Just to let us know a little bit about some of those old foundational building blocks. Oh, well, it was really based around cover crops initially and in that, um, you know, I was looking at, well, how can we grow something that sustains the vines, um, reduces compaction, adds organic matter, produces, provides nectar for beneficial insects, and then it, led on to, you know, okay, I've got a lot of insects now, how do I find out what these insects are, and so on and so forth. The interesting thing I found with that 
way back then was I read an organic magazine and I think it was for um, an article by a guy, Musgrave, from Wahi Bush. They make flaxseed oil. And he'd put together a cover crop mix um, for his stock and basically saying our stock is really healthy because of all these different minerals and, and the nutrition coming from the cover crop. And it was the same species that I'd planted in the vineyard and just in different ratios. So mm-hmm. I thought well, there's some real synergy there. So yeah. we're, we're looking at things for a different reason but coming up with the same yeah. answers. Because with the cattle, what we've observed um, is that when cattle – non-organic cattle, you know, when we, when we first bought them, it's almost like they have a, a 25% below par kind of a cold, you know, mm-hmm. for about a year until they go through the entire through the entire process, yeah. It's amazing. And then they flourish, mm-hmm. just like vines. Yes, I think so. So back then, if you were working for a conventional grower and they were giving you this little playpen to, to trial things in, if you went from one row to another – what would the comparison be? You've got the insects there, you've got these cover crops bringing those insects. Oh, well, we did we did some sort of in-house trials um, guided by Lincoln University late um, Professor Steve Ratton, um, capturing insects on the ground in the, in the canopy, worm counts. So I guess the history of um, cover cropping or things on the ground in Marlborough, when I first arrived here, a lot of the vineyards were 100% herbicided, um, or 100% cultivated, and then slowly people used to plant grass every second row for a while, and then grass every row. And so um, we looked at the grass species, which was a, a rye grass that was pretty popular at the time, and compared that with the cover crop mix that we had established. And um, basically, with the rye grass, there was nothing going on. Mm. Right, couldn't catch a beneficial insect. The worm counts were extremely low. It was more compact. It was no benefit at all just to have grass. So even as, as a third part of the trial, we'd worked up um, some rows and just let what was in the ground come through, and we had a far greater um, result, um, positive result with that than the standard grass, just straight grass, hmm. which sort of makes sense. So the work with Dr. Steve Ratton uh, was with... Professor. Professor, sorry. Steve Ratton was um, with the... Which plants were you planting there? Oh, that was buckwheat initially, and then Facelia followed. Uh, but um, I really only contacted him initially to um, ask him if I catch these insects, how do I identify them? Mm-hmm. And then he asked what we were up to. He had just got some funding to do work with uh, buckwheat and the you know control of light brown apple moth, and he was targeting um, apple orchards for it. And because we'd shown interest in it, he said, oh, I can transfer that work to vineyards. Mm. Would you guys be keen? He said, yeah, sure. And that's the 90s, and you now, buckwheat, phacelia, really common, aren't they, in vineyards? Mm. They are. Mm. Have you got yep. them out in the yeah. outfitting? Yeah, yeah. We've various, but um, mm. phacelia sort of, and buckwheat are sort of standards, you know, they're most often used. So what's your journey to organics, Erica? I suppose a bit more emotional than, than, than Bart's. I mean, for me... In my 30s, you know, we were working so hard in the mid-90s on that King Crawford brand, sort of early 2000s. And, um, you know, that moment when your mind is so full of stuff and you smack into the back of the garage door wall because you don't think to stop. That happened to me. And, of course, I mean, I didn't get hurt, but I still had to go for checkups. And they told me that I presented like a 55-year-old stressed-out businessman. And so I just started 
cutting out things. Mm. You know, I learned to read food labels and slowly sort of, so, so for me, it wasn't an overnight decision. It was a long journey and, you know, skincare and then how you clean the house. So by the time we were in the non-compete after selling Kim Crawford, it was a logical thing to do as an extension of, of my values. Yeah. Mm, so you already had Love Block at that point. We had some vineyards, yeah. Mm. But we, of course, we weren't allowed to make wine or, or anything else. We were growers for mm. a little. Yeah. Great. And then that's not been an easy journey, of course. No, it's not. And we learned a lot. And sort of, um, so we tagged on, you know, we had the benefit of people like Bart's um, knowledge and experience at the time. Uh, but yeah, we, you know, um, we also planted in, in a place some vineyards that people hadn't planted in that soil before. And, mm. and it was treated almost like vines on the valley floor and of course it's a completely different kettle of fish and so we've learned you know it's better to convert a vineyard than to go in a very difficult challenging uh, position to grow organics from the beginning so we and, and I think the biggest thing for me is it's taken away a little bit of my a-type drive and forced me to observe and mm. and and follow as opposed to imposing our our will and our machinery when the machinery is available and do what the vine tells us when it's ready. So that's probably the biggest learning for me is be more patient. Oh, that's really interesting. Mm. Now, I guess many of us can picture a vineyard on a valley floor, say in the Wido Plains, but can you just paint a picture of Love Block in, in the whole entirety because it's not just about vines, is it? Yes, yeah, so it's a 168-hectare it's farm of which uh, uh, 45 is planted under vine. And... Um, the entire farm is certified, although some of the vineyards have been taken out of organics because we were just we couldn't manage grass grub biologically. It's in the middle of grass grazing land, and so what it does give you that place on the hill is just the most stunning view, looking over the Awateri South. Mm-hmm. The Awateri Valley is quite different; it's not as busy as as the Wairo, and and so it has these beautiful striations, and that's really what made me buy that place. Mm. Yeah. And then, of course, the slope of the vineyards is northerly, and they sort of the hills dovetailed quite nicely. Beautiful, and, and amongst your vines, you've got cattle and cattle, and you're and looking plant, at you know biodiversity planting mm. and so on. Yeah, great. It's beautiful. It's beautiful up there. It is beautiful up yeah. there. Yeah, you really forget your troubles for a moment. So I'm Jeff Thorpe. I'm the um, the founder and managing director of River Sun Nursery up in Sunny Gisborne. Yeah, I originally started Riverson way back in 1982. I guess I was very fortunate. I discovered my passion for growing plants um, as a 17-year-old with a, with a big vegetable garden. I followed that passion and, so yeah, as I say, started as a one-man band and have continued to build it to this day. But it, I guess it was, yeah, I was fortunate to find that passion, um, to find my life purpose was about a love of growing plants, you know, and hence the growing excellence, you know, I think it comes back to my um, to my upbringing. My dad always taught us, you know, do it once, do it well. If a job's worth doing, it's worth doing well. Quality always sells. He grew up in the depression, so that was in our family DNA, I guess. So for me, um, yeah, when I started River Sun, it wasn't just about growing plants. I wanted to grow the best plants that I possibly could. And I think at a higher level, my, you know, I believe. I think we're all on this planet to be the best that we can be. So if you're going to um, pick a career and follow follow a life a life passion or a life purpose, then um, 
give it everything you've got and that's really what drives yeah drives me and and Riverson's commitment to to quality and and therefore innovation really putting ourselves out on the edge So, um, Bart, you founded, helped found Organic Wine Growers New Zealand. Is that right? Uh, yeah, one of yeah. the founding members. How, so. how long ago was that? Uh, I don't know, actually. It must be about 15 years. Yeah. And, Erica, you're a marketing representative on, on, that, on the exec now. On the exec, yeah. yeah. So what um, insights are you have you gleaned in the time that you've been organic on the role of uh, New Zealand organic wine here, but also, you know, um, selling it in overseas markets? I mean, I, th- I think firstly, there are a lot more vineyards um, farming organically, but isn't there, compared to even five years ago, mm. it is growing, especially at, at, at the vineyard level. And, and when, once the bigger players come in and they do it, then, then it's a real thing, you know, and mm. we've got uh, some of the big companies Geeson, Babich, Villa, um, and of course, but Dog Points, Decade, but of the big, big companies are mm. getting into that as well. So, since we entered the market with Love Block in 2013, um, I've seen a tremendous change. Mm. Um, first, people were a little bit, didn't really know, they knew organics was something, but they were already dedicated, you know. Um, shops in the US and, and, and Europe, such as, you know, we all know about Whole Foods, Wegmans, um, Central Market in the US. Um, so there was in, an interest starting to develop. And now it's almost sort of, it's just butting into mainstream. People are also looking for more. They're looking for sustainability, carbon neutrality. So they're looking for a whole lot of things. Yes. and But they're also very confused. <laughs> yeah. So, and now there's some. Um, I I think I read in the latest organic matters that uh, wine sales in general are stagnant, but yeah. organic wine sales are are growing, growing yeah, in yeah, those key sure. markets. Is that right? They are. Um, I think Europe and UK. It's growing at about, in fact, thirty percent in the UK. Majestic reports something like twenty seven percent. And the US and Canada, of course, is a bit different because in terms of certification. New Zealand Australia lines with the EU, and mm. um, so it's they recognise our standards, but the US and Canada doesn't. So, so in fact, I don't know of a single producer in New Zealand, do you, Bart, who certifies for the the US um, USDA? And there may be one or two small guys, mm, but, maybe um, Chloe Henri. Yeah, it's really, really because no sulfites added mm. on top of all the organics, mm. and and so most of us send our wine there not as certified organic wine. Mm. So it doesn't get measured when they do all these measurements, Nielsen's and um, and that sort of stuff. But if I can just go to that in the US. Um, so for the certified product, that's growing. And Bonterra is the US biggest producer. They're about 500,000 cases. That's a lot of organic wine. And they they are growing 5% at this stage and they're projecting to grow even faster. Mm. That's pretty exciting. Mm. <laughs> it didn't look like that in, in the 1990s, did it? No, no, not really. But I also think it has to do with New Zealand wasn't really an established mm. player then, and we are definitely are now. And um, lots of uh, New Zealand's premium 
wine labels, some of the most known uh, premium wine labels mm. are organic. So that must, um, and a lot of those growers will say that they do it for the quality of the wine mm. rather than the notion of organics or perhaps for both those things. But that must um, raise that profile, does it? Oh, absolutely. I think if people do get in the wine industry to make you know, the best possible wine, um, then you benchmark yourself against those that you think are at the top. Mm. And um, more than often, um, those at the top are practicing uh, organics and biodynamics. Mm, it's exciting. So why does it actually create a better wine in some cases? Well, we've talked about the soil thing, but I think there's just a, a greater focus by the people involved. You know, they have a goal at the end of it that they want to produce a really top bottle of wine. So, you know, they look at the whole thing in, in, in its entirety. It's just not about growing grapes and then hoping that your winemaker will um, do something magical with it and you'll get accolades for it. You know, the consistency of these guys, you know, and I guess really the benchmark for organics um, in New Zealand has to be Central Otago, mm. you know, with their high percentage of land. Under you know organic uh, certification, so and, that's about twenty five percent, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean it's it's a really high number. It's mm. world beating, probably. It's very mm. hard to quantify some other regions in, in in Europe, in particular, because they have so many certifying bodies, and some of those certifying bodies are only for um, maybe their region, mm. as opposed to certified to an organic world standard. So yeah, I guess that's. Um, yeah, they're leading the way. Uh, is it um, also to do with yields? I mean, Central Otago Pinot growers are going to be seeking quite low yield vines anyway, I assume. Well, exactly. If you want to make really good Pinot Noir, you, you can't overcrop it. And we, uh, even in Marlborough here, when we're um, working with Pinot Noir, we're, we're thinning every year. So Pinot Noir is not a variety that troubles us for tonnage mm. to make good wine. Because our yields lower with organics, I guess is the question. Well, we still have to thin, mm. so you know, ideally, we wouldn't like to thin, but um, yeah, right. Know, we have certain tonnage expectations where we want to hit for really good pinot, um, and if you get too high, you tend to get a, uh, a real sweet and sour effect in the wine, and it doesn't really sit with you know trying to put a top wine out. So that's Pinot. I understand Sauvignon Blanc, for example, is the least likely to be certified organic. Is that because of yields? I mean, That is. I suppose that's one of the major factors and, and you know, it's the dominant variety as we know. Um, there is, I think, a um, expectation and it's, it's happened over time that Sauvignon Blanc um, can crop at really high levels and produce a wine, which it can, we know that it can. Um, it produces the high cropping vineyards, in my opinion, produce wines that are very short lived. Um, it reminds me a lot of um, the, you know, the buzz of of Nouveau Beaujolais when that was the big thing during the eighties and nineties, where you know there was a, a light, um, frivolous type red wine came out of France. Um, they created excitement around it. But those wines were gone within the year and, you know, you waited for the next year one. Behind all that, there was some Beaujolais that are absolutely stonkers, you know, they rival Burgundies. Um, but they got lost, you hmm. know, because of this 
this attitude to this, you know, other wine from the region. Um, I see that happening a little bit with Melbourne Sauvignon Blanc. You know, you have this high turnover variety that's in the supermarket. It's gone. Whereas, you know, I've tried recently 10, 12-year-old, well-made yep. Melbourne Sauvignon Blancs, mm. and they are really interesting wines. Mm. We need to convince a lot of the world buyers that this is, you know, this is a classic, one of the world's classic grape varieties. Um, I worry that we're in danger of turning it into Nouveau Beaujolais. Mm. I think also with, with the breadth of flavor that Sauvignon has, it's so well suited to organics because then, you know, we get different flavors peaking out with, with this kind of management and with time. And also I just want to bring in here winemaking, of course, is quite different as well under organic standards. It's like, how does someone explain to me when I was first doing the research, it's like giving you a full pantry and giving Bart five ingredients and say, make the same dish. So it puts emphasis on the quality of the fruit, and you're really um, you're really limited in in in, in terms of additives. Mm. So I think we've also become a lot smarter in terms of winemaking, you know, um, technology driven, and also the move back to alternative vessels that a lot of people are getting into, like concrete eggs and amphora and and, and stuff. Um, so I see that we're evolving that style of mm. Sauvignon Blanc, and we we. You know, edging into those little corners that, that 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 the big tanks don't slowing things down a little bit. Yeah. So um, we'll get on to the conference soon, but I'm just interested to know. There's the certified organic, and though that data it can be captured um, through uh, the likes of BioGrow or um, Biodynamic Growers through Demeter, but. Um, I also see a softening across the board. How influential has organics been on, say, regenerative viticulture, which is a bit of a buzz at the moment, or um, conventional viticulture? How have you seen that changing as a result of the research and, and experiences of organic growers? Well, I think any, anybody that's an observer will see that, you know, by changing your system, um, doesn't mean the world's going to end, you know. And so, you know, right from when I started consulting, I was getting phone calls um, pre that of people saying, oh, we don't really want to use this. What do you do instead? How can you do this if we don't do that? You know, that sort of thing. So, and often it's driven by individuals on the ground who, who want to change. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting over time looking at um, – the reasons people start their conversions. Sometimes it's from marketing offshore who said there's a market, why aren't we in it? Um, but I think to make it stick, you've got to um, have people on the ground that are really keen on it. Mm. And, mm. and it takes commitment, patience and time. Yeah, and understanding. And, mm. Because um, it is a bit more work. <laughs> yes, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a longer period before you get mm. see the real benefits. Mm. You know, you don't, you can't just do things and get a high crop um, in one or two seasons. It's it's a longer window that you've got to put it. It is commitment. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then it comes back to Bart's initial point of second, third, fourth generation growers in New Zealand. Mm. We don't have that yet. Mm. The regen um, movement is, is quite interesting. You know, when you look at it, it's um, a, a lot of the things that are promoting as being something – 
quite new or actually quite old, and a lot of people have been doing it for a long time, just under a different mm. name. Um, I see offshore now there's a couple of um, organic regenerative certifying bodies. Mm, so um, potentially over time, um, marketing yourself as being a regenerative um, viticultural vineyard or you know winemaking may strike a you know, a few negative chords offshore if they're certified over there. And, um, yeah, but, I mean, I, I have to applaud anybody that's actually looking to change in a positive direction. Uh, mm. And I think the movement's great. But I also think that it – I also think that it refers to that softening of viticulture that you referred to before, you know, where certification is too big a leap, um, but they want to do something. And it sort of sits between Swin's accreditation and organic mm. certification, isn't it? And years ago, we <clears throat> thought about calling it Swin's Gold or something, but that's never going to happen. But it's happening now. Mm. And what do we? Because organic farmers, of course, are the original Regen Aggers. Yeah. 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 The Regen Ag movement, you know, as we'll find out at the conference, started a long, long time ago with the Rodale Institute. They were the first ones, I think, to come up with the term. Um, so it's. Uh, yeah, really interesting, and it's you know it's got governments like you know interested, and um, uh, but I think you know ultimate goal would be you know you carry on those sort of practices, then you know, certification's not that big a step. Mm. Yes, yeah. yeah. Someone described to me recently that all organic, good organic viticulture is by its nature regenerative because it's not just about Correct. not using sprays; is it? Yeah, exactly. it's about avoiding it's, it yeah. being extractive and putting in. It's a system. Mm. And by the same token, all regen should be organic, is what this person was saying. So. Okay, so on to the conference. Mm. Um, the first one um, was in 2015, although I understand you had a bit of a practice run before then. But I remember being there, and it was packed. And it was so exciting because – no, it's a vibe. It was a real vibe. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I know that in the 90s, it was a pretty empty vineyard row. <laughs> When yeah, you were there. Yeah. But so how was it for you to, to be at this conference in twenty fifteen, surrounded by conventional and organic, you know, people in the middle? Um Yeah, well I guess I mean how it came about was that um we were you know, the Brigato um conferences, the it was the New Zealand conference, wine wine growing conference, and um we noted the that whenever there was a um organic workshop or a speaker it was very well attended. And so on a couple of occasions, um, organic wine growers had sort of kicked off. We were sort of saying, you know, you know, you should really have a little bit more of this sort of content. We didn't seem to be getting anywhere. Uh, we had a meeting with Philip Gregan. It was one of our sort of annual exec meetings. And we said, look, we're thinking of doing your own thing. And he just he encouraged us at the time. He said, well, have a go. Of course, then... Um, we were like, oh, God, we've got to do it now. And then, uh, yeah, i got to say it was pretty stressful. Um, but it was it's always great to see when you hit that, oh, we're not going to lose money, Mark. And um, and it was awesome to just see all these people coming to the conference. You know, We've had um, um, at least one Australian wine company that's been to every one of these conferences. Mm. So we hear from speakers from offshore that what we've done was quite unique. Um, when we've designed the program, it's not we're not trying to shove things down people's throats. We're trying to make it interesting, and even if you will never be organic in your life, we hope 
that there'll be something there that you can take away and go, I could actually use that. You mm. know? Yep. It's uh, nice to see all those people who may not be organic but are fully committed to trying to improve their soil health and their vitamin Absolutely. health. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think those those earlier conferences most certainly assisted people in taking that step into the softening, into mm. let's call it regen ag, because um, you just don't know where to start. Mm. You know, um, it's, And there's always a real excitement and um, joyful vibe at the conference. It really is quite different, isn't it? Mm. No, it's, it's fantastic. What, what are you particularly excited about this year? Because it's got everything. It's got soil health and mycorrhizae we spoke about earlier, but also communities and... Um. Well, the whole thing, you know, I'm, um, is uh, myself and um, Nick Pett have put the program mainly together with um, help from our conference committee with ideas and things and uh, what happens, and this is just how my mind works, I suppose, we, we start off with a bit of a theme and then we build around it and then not all the speakers that we um, would have liked to have were available and then... You know, sometimes it tracks off in another direction, but we just try to keep, you know, some sort of synergy between each speaker. And um, those themes sort of almost emerge by themselves in the end. Um, so, yeah, no, it's um, it's always a, an interesting journey. There's um, a lot of time differences between people you're trying to talk to around the mm. world. and Yeah, and, and has it, because of that reputation you spoke about earlier, is it easy to get people to come from, we've got speakers from South Africa? Oh, Elaine Brown, you know, who's one of our speakers, um, when I first contacted her, um, she said, oh, I've been following your guys' conferences for years. I'm, I'm coming, you know. Yeah. So Cameron Douglas, another one, he'd been, you know, trying to get to one for ages. So, yeah, so I guess we have um, created something. And, and um, I think last year we had 12 Australian wine companies yeah, come across. Um, we've got guys coming from Canada this time. Um, as well as Australia. So. To come and be attendees. Yeah. Huh, yeah. that's amazing. Um, and one of our speakers from the States is bringing his partner um, because they said there's nothing like this in the States. We want to see how it's done. And um, yes, yeah. I've had some um, questions from South Africa too. They just don't have anything like that. Mm. Hmm. It is very unique. And what are you, is there anything I you think is going to be a standout? I think people should really pay attention to the carbon session mm. because it's confusing. The carbon economy is, for me, quite cynical, you know, as it stands at the moment with its tick boxing. It's a hell of a process to go through, um, but the, coming out the other side for people who've been through it, like um, Felton Road, they have really good insights. Mm. And, um, and I think we all struggle with the accreditation because it's a, as I say, it's a heck of a process, and so that should be quite interesting too. There's a speaker on that as well. Mm. No, I think the emissions ones look really yeah. interesting, and I think people are confused, you know, mm. uh, because how is it that we as organic wine growers have a higher carbon footprint than guys who spray? It's just counterintuitive. How is it that a synthetic rug has a lower carbon footprint than a woolen rug? because it uses less water to wash. Mm. How is it that those horrible grocery bags that you get, those red ones and they fray, have a lower carbon footprint than a certified organic um, canvas bag? Mm. So we are confused. Mm. And you're hoping that the conference is going to shed some light on it? Yeah, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that people would ask questions and I'm hoping that it would propel people to ask questions and look at their own um, 
would be doing. Mm. The, the first thing we can all do is change to a lighter bottle. Mm. That shaves 15% of your product footprint immediately. Um, and my question is, um, sadly, I'm going to unfortunately have to miss the conference, but my question is, is it not time for a universal wine bottle? Mm. We all yeah. have the same wine bottle and it gets recycled. And this, um, we talked about this about two years ago, three years ago. My nephew lived in, the U- in Ukraine for about eight years and all jars there are the same. So mm. the only branding that you can do is a label. Mm. And it makes incredible sense. Mm. Do you get that at the next conference? Mm. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so, and at the conference, you're going to be doing a fundraiser for um, growers in Gisborne. Gisborne Hawks Bay Cyclone Relief. So mm. we've... Um, in the evening of the dinner, the gala dinner, um, there's going to be uh, donated items for auction. And um, we also had a goal to get about 20 magnums um, to have around the trade stand. So we'll do a sort of a blind auction thing there. We've ended up at the moment with 42. Wow. Um, so everybody's been really generous. And um, so that, that adds a bit of fun too and a... Um, Hopefully uh, we can show the industry up north that, uh, you know, the rest of us acknowledge how tough it's been for them and, uh, you know, mm. we won't fix all the problems. But I think it's nice to know that, um, you know, there's a thinking about, you know, how they're getting on. The uh, cyclone has definitely been um, illustrated, I think, the collegiality and the wine industry around the country, like people, it might be a young industry, but it's a tight industry, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's phenomenal, the damage that was caused. Mm. What's so amazing is that it's like two continents, the North and the South Island. Mm. Yes. Mm. So 30 years or so since you started playing in the backs of a vineyard and um, – what do you see in the future for organics in Marlborough, in New Zealand, and in the market? Well, I think, you know, in general, um, New Zealand wine needs to be viewed worldwide as being high-quality, hard-to-get wine that you search out and you pay a little bit more for it. Um, and, you know, I believe the organics biodynamics side will play a part in that. But I'd, I'd like to see probably over time more um, research funding going into some of the questions that we'd like answered um, and um, that'll help all the growers, you know, often observation is the key but that often kicks science into gear. Like you observe something, you've got questions, how do you answer them when you need science to answer a lot of those questions, so. So we've had the seven-year vineyard ecosystems project from Brigada Research Institute, which would have looked into that. I mean, it shows that there's a lot of it, kind of interest and excitement about it. They called it future farming, didn't they? Yeah. And then um, plant and food research, Vaughan Bell, is doing mm. a lot of work into biodiversity. And Seven the- years is a short time. You know, a lot of answers aren't going to be found for a lot longer than that. Um, yeah. You know, change within systems there's some changes are immediate and some some are really long-term and we really don't know yet. The science is really interesting because, of course, biodynamics and organics are ancient. Yes. Mm. You know, this is not a modern thing and yet 
there's um, the science seems to be really integral to to moving it forward. As is, you know, technology and changes. You you change the way you do things all the time, don't you? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've I've talked to scientists about things that have happened on vineyards, and um, and given my opinion why, and they say, well, there's no science behind it, but you know. It's just because science hasn't looked at it really mm. on many occasions. And I, well, I, from 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 my point of view, this you know we have to tell our story better of what we are as New Zealand organ- organic growers and winemakers to honour all that work that goes into the vineyard. My mm. God, because it's it's tough from mm. time to time. Mm. So that is something that we really need to look at quite hard, I think, and um, and. Because it's a, a growing organic sector as well, and wine can really lead the way. Difficulty with wine, of course, is that people think it's natural in any way. Mm. So we need to tell our story better, I think, um, and really sing it out to the world. Mm. It would be nice. One of my death wishes would be if we can have a universal organic standard for all markets. And then you could measure it. Then you could measure it and... It will it will cut cut your cost of goods enormously um, than you know operating by three or four different um, accreditation systems. Once you have your one bottle fits all uh-huh. and your one standard fits all, sustainable life will be complete. Sustainable, yeah. Huh. Yeah, great. Oh well, thank you very much. It's an exciting field. Um, so we finish up with a inspiration for my weekend: uh, food and wide match. Would you like to start, Erica? I am a massive lover of Marlborough Riesling. You know, they're so different from the different areas and they aged incredibly, age incredibly well. So that's my go-to mm. as Marlborough Riesling and, and stockpile them. So, yes, with anything. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Not a match so much as just a with anything. Riesling rave. Yep. But? Um, well... <laughs> It's more of a summer dish, but um, um, organic butterfly chicken, um, puri puri, barbecue, um, salad with as many of the vegetables grown in my backyard as possible. Um, the wine would be a um, oak-aged or barrel-fermented Sauvignon Blanc with a couple of years on it. Brilliant. Surely you can go and pick some of that salad from the cover crops in the middle of a row. <laughs> True. The sheep are having to go first. <laughs> Great. Thanks very much for coming in. Thank, Thank you. you. Who do I send the invoice to? <laughs> <laughs> that was Bart Arnst and Erica Crawford. A big thanks for their time. This podcast is made possible by Wine Marlborough and River Sun Nursery. We really appreciate their support in getting these interesting wine stories across. I'm really looking forward to the conference coming up later this month and um, particularly some of the climate change and emissions reduction pieces that will be uh, discussed there and we'll talk about that more in one of the podcasts later in the year. In the meantime, thanks for listening. See you next time.